0: Church government, that's that's another thing that is obviously linked to everything we're talking about and have talked about so far, but trying to get a handle on the different types of government. We've said in the past that all of us sitting here, and I'm not sure if you guys are comfortable with this terminology, you can answer me if you want, but I usually talk about kind of this free church mentality, evangelical Protestantism, basically free church meaning that not really connected to any um, any other churches in a formal way, uh, top down or bottom up, like Presbyterian style or or a Baptist style. Even connecting with the with the Baptist Convention, um, all of us here, I think, are free church. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Now, having said that, I, I guess it would be a whole different. Discussion. If we were all Presbyterians sitting here talking about how our government functions, but I want to talk about church government broadly speaking and what forms there are out there, um, and, and who represents those forms. And so, if we can go there, guys, uh, and, and help people understand, I don't want to spend too much time on it because it could get kind of just basic facts. But how, how does how, what type of governments are out there? First of all, what type of representations? And where do you find them? Well, generally speaking, there are,
1: I don't know, what, three or four different main types within which there are probably different expressions. Um, there is, and maybe the best way to help our listeners grasp this is to cast it in terms of what's present in the, in the in body of Christ now. Let's not worry too much about the historical expression. In the body, in the Protestant world now, you have the Southern Baptists, who are somewhat divided on this. Generally, they have had one individual, the senior pastor, who is the elder of the church. Uh, and then there is a board of deacons uh, that functions in many Baptist churches like a board of elders would. In, in others, they are really answerable to the senior pastor, and he exerts somewhat authoritarian control over them. Um, so there's there's that. That's the single elder model is what we might call it. Then there's the plural elder model, in which uh, there's a multiplicity, more than one, obviously, of men who exercise governmental authority. Then there's the, uh, both in the single elder model and the plural elder model, there's a strictly congregational form of government, in which these men are elected by the congregation. They are answerable to the church, and in fact, Virtually all, and in some churches, every decision has to be taken before the people. So really the, the authority to govern in the, in the body is not with either an elder, like a senior pastor, or a plural board of elders, but the, the members themselves. They exert that final full authority. So you have single elder, plural elder, congregational. Then you have um, Episcopal-type government where you have a bishop, Um, or a priest who, excuse me, a priest who has authority very much like a single elder model over a congregation, but he himself is subject to the governing authority of a bishop over a particular geographical region of churches. So, broadly speaking, Episcopal, single elder, plural elder, congregational are are the forms of government that exist. And then, of course, you have some churches that would say, there is no government. Government is unbiblical. We don't read about um, these kinds of structures uh, in the New Testament. And therefore, it's uh, every member ministry, nobody has any kind of authority over anybody else um, and they're actually—that's actually coming back. It's very much in vogue now, and I think largely as a reaction to the more traditional forms of of church life that they've seen as being oppressive and uh-huh. and and, and, the, and such. So you almost have to throw in—I don't want to say the ecclesiological uh, anarchism, but. In in yeah. some respects, it feels that way. Or
2: you could just call it other. Maybe. Other, yeah. Other, we'll just uh, box for other. Yeah, because you could ask, you know, what's your church structure, and they'd be like, well, we have a CFO, a CIO, you know, and all of these terms. You'd be like, no, your church, and it's like, yeah, that's what we do. You know, we don't abide by any of those old. You know, we're now. Uh, reaching people in a brand new way. So well, you know, and, and, and
1: this is found in a lot of the in the, in the global house church movement now in which you have small congregations that meet in homes literally and there're no more than 25 or 30 people at most and they say we have no government we don't have authority structures every member is a priest every member has a vote and a voice
0: yeah. okay so let's let's try to break this up on a spectrum maybe we go from one end of the spectrum to the other far left let's say is the congregational or the congregation it's a bottom up type government, mm-hmm. at least in theory. Pure, right? almost almost entirely democratic in okay. its nature. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, let's go to the far right, and let's say we've got an Episcopal type, but let's put it in the Roman Catholic sense. Sure. Mm-hmm. So not only do you have a governing bishop over a region, you have an ultimate governing bishop who sits in the chair of Peter, so that would be purely top-down. We'll mm-hmm. just call that
2: a dictator. Dictator. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully a benign one. Yeah, yeah the, we, we are remaining neutral here yeah, on I theology and Totally kidding about that. Um, okay, so in between send that, your emails to Tim, <laughs> not true. me and Michael. Tim that was at Tim. I don't care.
0: <laughs> so then, in between that, congregational, which you're going to find the Baptist and um, and congregational type systems, and even further, I guess to the left, the Brethren. And then you start going to the right, and you start having more of a presbytery, maybe. Presbyterian, you have presbytery eldership, mm-hmm. and you have representative elderships in regional—not not one person, but regional presbyteries. And then you move over to the bishops and, and then to the pope. So you kind of got this broad spectrum here and people I mean believe it or not this is this is a very very volatile issue. Oh and people have strong feelings about it. You bet they do. Yeah, it's yeah. not something you're you looking just... at one who has strong feelings. About.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, so talk about your strong feelings. I mean, where where do they lie and why? Yeah. My
1: first response would be there are some who simply argue the New Testament doesn't mandate any particular form of church governance. They said it's it's fluid, there are variations, there are differences from what we read in Acts, from what we will read in the later pastoral epistles. I happen to disagree with that. I, uh, I would throw out the gauntlet, the challenge, as it were, for somebody to give me an example of any local church in the New Testament that was not led by a plurality of elders. Um, it seems to me that that is a uniform... reality in the New Testament documents. Um, Early on, for example, in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, right after they had suffered the stoning at Lystra, this is Acts 14, it says, uh, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Every church, so whatever church plant there was through Paul's missionary efforts, they appointed elders in those churches. Um, this is the same commission that Paul gave to Titus to appoint elders as well. Um, whenever the churches are addressed or elders are discussed, it's always a plurality. Uh, so for me, it seems to be rather obvious that this is the New Testament mandate. Now, again, there's wonderful scholars and Christians who disagree with that and say that, um, that, that there's no single system that is uh, required in the New Testament. I personally think that plurality of male elders is.
0: Well, let me challenge that then in this way. Um, If that is the case, and if you're gonna defend that by saying you find this in the New Testament where they are always appointing elders, okay? then why not, back to my ordination, <laughs> why, not, why not say that this appointing is always has to be done by someone else? In other words, there's no self-appointing. Do you ever find self-appointed elders in the New Testament? If not, let's follow your method and say, since this is the model that we see always, why not say you always have to be appointed by someone else? You know what, Tim? Yeah, I, I detect something beneath the surface here. There's yeah. an ulterior motive. I think
1: Michael is bucking. This is not psychology. He's bucking for the office of apostle. <laughs> yeah. He wants to be able to appoint elders yeah. and kick them out. Uh-huh. And I just sit. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I was you,
2: totally tracking with yeah. you. Yeah, I got
1: scared there for a minute. I yeah. thought I was in the, in the chair. Yeah, I he's <laughs> aspiring to the apostolic office. Uh, yeah. But seriously, it is a very valid question. Um, well, let, let's, use a, let's use a very real example. Mm-hmm. I won't mention names, but uh, there was a church that was planted near Oklahoma City by a young man, a very young man, uh, very qualified, very gifted, uh, wonderful, godly character, good teacher. And initially, he was the only one with any kind of sense of authority or leadership over that body. And as the church began to grow and expand, he took it upon himself to appoint two others to serve with him in that position of leadership. Now, he consulted with others in the church. He didn't just arbitrarily do it. He took time to observe them and watch them. He may even have consulted with others. In fact, he did because he came to me and asked my opinion and that of some other pastors in the community. And then when um, he came into the Acts 29 network as part of his assessment, they said, we think you've gone about this a little bit prematurely in the wrong way. So we're asking that those men that you appointed elders step out of that role and that you bring them in through an educational system, spend the next year teaching them, praying, getting the input of others. He did that. One of those men reemerged after that period of time as an elder. So... The rest did not? uh, No, the other chose not to. Uh, It wasn't because he wasn't qualified. He just chose not to. So, uh, you know... There, what would we say about that scenario? Was it done biblically? I think it was done about as biblically as it could have been because even though he started the church, he was always seeking the counsel of others about leadership. And he, he said, is it even legitimate to refer to myself as an elder or am I just simply a pastor teacher in the early stages of this church's life? But as it grew, it became necessary to have some sort of of leadership, those who, who possess some measure of authority to make decisions that had to be made. Mm. Now, you know, in the New Testament, when the apostolic company was functioning uh, as we understand it, um, clearly they had an authority to appoint elders. They had a, a, the ability, the discernment, and the commission from God to do so. Um, now, this raises the whole question of, well, are there still elders in the body of Christ? Do they have the? If so, do they have that authority over local churches today? That's a whole other can of worms that I just opened. But
0: well, I mean, it's 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 an important can, and and also, I mean, it's important to try to figure out uh, accountability within the pastorate. You know, and and who who are you accountable to? And whenever you talk about a plurality of elders, Sam, um, and I want to ask you a, a hard question in just a minute about the the passionate plea that you had for um, the plurality of elders, Mm -hmm. so don't let me forget that. But if you have that plurality of elders, are you saying that these elders, and then you have a pastor that is among the elders, that is the head pastor? I mean, do you use those terminology in your government system? Um, We talk about a
1: first among equals. Uh, In our local church, I only have one vote on the Board of Elders. I can't come in and say, all right, look, I'm the CEO, um, I'm the senior pastor, and here's what we're going to do. Um, I can be and have been voted down on certain issues. It isn't often because we have such great commonality in, of belief and philosophy, but it has happened. And it's think, about the candy machine, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and I think that's healthy. I think it's very healthy. Um, now, the only time in our bylaws that I have a little bit more authority is if we have, an, uh, let's say we have, we have eight elders right now. Let's say it's a four to four split on an issue. I have the authority, according to the bylaws, to break that tie. Uh, but aside from that, I don't have any formal legal authority. That is greater than that of any other elder. Now, do I have a spiritual influence that is greater than the other elders? Yes, by their consent. They want me to lead, they want my input. Um, they are trusting me and, in fact, have hired me to provide that kind of input and oversight and influence uh, and to study in ways that they don't have time because they're full time employed elsewhere. So, my influence is greater. Some would say, well, yeah, and therefore your authority is too. Well, that's true, but my authority is not unbridled. It's not unchecked. And those elders can put a stop to anything that I'm promoting um, by virtue of the fact that they are elders. So
0: um, that's well, that's the way that our plurality of elders functions. But you're also involved in the Acts 29 network. Do they hold any authority over you or over your church? No. No. The only authority they have over us is they
1: possess the right to expel us if we end up deviating from the values and the theological convictions of the network. They cannot come in and fire me or hire me or tell our elders you need to do this or that. They have no governmental authority whatsoever. So actually is not a denomination. But in order to maintain our membership or within the affiliation of Acts 29 churches, we do have to affirm certain theological truths and certain uh, biblical values. So um, in that sense, they would have authority, but it's obviously not in the sense that, uh, for example, in Presbyterianism, where um,
0: that authority is, is much more powerful and can be wielded over a, a wide variety of issues. Do you guys believe in the independence? Are, are you strong about this, the independence of the local church in this sense that we're talking about it?
2: I think so because I think the qualifications for, for an overseer uh, gives that authority. You know, God is giving the authority of uh, protecting the sheep and and guiding the flock. Uh, so you wouldn't want. Uh, I was teaching last night on uh, Karl Barth and and World War II time period and how the Third Reich came in, took over the church, and started telling the local churches what to do and Bart in writing the Barman declaration interestingly pushes towards local church authority with the idea that you should ne- even if it's a Nazi coming to you and saying look I'm an overseer of this church you need to not allow Jews to be members anymore you'd say no you can't have that authority because God has placed elders to be the people in this local church to exercise that authority so you never have to be be afraid of in in an essence where God is is raising up local leadership, you don't have to be afraid of someone coming and disrupting all of that. Yeah, that's you just really, that's a big can of worms because it took our, me to World War II yeah, for crying out yeah, loud. Carl <laughs> Bart,
1: because you basically asked the question are denominations biblical? Uh, when you said, do we believe in independency? I, I'm not so sure I like that word. Um, let me simply say, I, I believe in the autonomy of the local church. And I don't believe there is any higher authority in a local church than its own board of elders. That doesn't necessarily preclude being a part of a denomination. uh, Because Southern Baptists are part of, obviously, the largest Protestant denomination in the world. But each church is autonomous. So the convention cannot come in. The president of the SBC can't come in and fire any particular local church pastor. So there is an autonomy, but there is also a very much of an interconnectedness and a commitment to a common, uh, they have what they call the, the Baptist faith and message, statement of faith, and a commitment to support the cooperative program, which is their joint missionary uh, endeavor. Um, so, I think that you can, that, that denominations, I don't, I would say this, I would say they're non-biblical, but they're not necessarily unbiblical. I don't believe that you can find explicit justification for denominations in the New Testament. Now, Presbyterians would argue, based on what they see in Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council, that we see that already in some form in existence. I would disagree with that interpretation. But um, in saying it's non-biblical simply means it's not explicitly stated. But I wouldn't want to say it's unbiblical in the sense that it violates something in the New Testament unless and and this is my own personal conviction, don't want to speak for anybody else here, unless that denominational authority uh, elevates some individual or some council or some synod or body or whatever above that of the local elders uh, of a particular church. I would find that very hard to justify biblically, but but I wouldn't want to
0: say that's Anti-biblical. I just simply say it's non-biblical. So at the same time, you say I'm very passionate about the the autonomy of the local church. I'm very passionate about the eldership and how the elders should function. But yet at the same time, I'm not so I don't want to say use the word passion anymore. But I'm not so um, uh, dogmatic about this that I would say the other expressions are illegitimate.
1: Right, I, I, I would, I would say it's a matter of comparative um, fidelity to the Word of God. I think that there is a certain. It's like evangelicalism overall. I believe that evangelicalism, however, man, we could define it any number of ways is the best and the purest expression of biblical Christianity. But it's not the only expression of biblical Christianity. Mm. Because there are some non-evangelicals who don't believe in inerrancy and who have differing views on the nature of hell that we talked about earlier. Uh, I'm not going to say they're not Christians. I certainly believe they can be born again. Uh, So same thing with church government. I think there are uh, more accurate and less accurate expressions of New Testament ecclesiology. But that doesn't mean, for example, that if a church is a part of a denomination and there is a synod or a presbytery that exerts an authority over that body, that doesn't mean it's not a local church. Yeah, doesn't mean that these aren't biblical Christians. It just is not as, in my opinion, as pure and as accurate a representation of biblical Christianity as it should be. But...
0: You know, I have some of my best friends are in those kinds of churches. Well, let's let's talk about those people. Let's talk about how they might look at uh, sitting here at the table. And I think we're all pretty much in agreement about this the the autonomy and the eldership because we all have been in churches and our, our traditions say such. But with somebody, let, let's bring in a representative argument. What would they say to us? And what would they say? Yeah, but you guys. Here's where you're going to go wrong. Here's where your tradition really messes things up. And here's why it's it's wrong. Well, I think
1: they would basically come at it uh, from a couple of perspectives. Number one, they would say, we think we've got a biblical case. We think we can build a case from Acts 15 and a few other texts for a, at least an incipient court Acts system. Acts
0: 15 being the council. The council of Jerusalem, and, yeah. And sending out uh, the, the idea to tell all the churches this right. is what we're supposed to do. So right. it's kind of this... This uh, hierarchy, yes. They would appeal to that. And then they'd say,
1: you guys, what's going to prevent you from just going rogue? I mean, you're de- you're treading on thin ice because uh, all it takes is uh, one man or a group of men who uh, deviate from the text and whose character begins to um, um, uh, turn south, as it were, and there's no accountability. There's nobody to hold you in check. And if you don't have some sort of broader... Relational structure that examines
0: you and holds you accountable and judges you—you're um, setting yourself up for going over the edge of the cliff. And not only would they bring this up, but they would have many examples, sure, probably, and not exceptions. And I'm not—I'm not questioning the legitimacy of that
1: uh, of that exhortation, and, and that's why—that's one reason, for example, why we are a part of the Acts 29 network is that uh, there are other pastors here in Oklahoma City in our region, in the nation, around the world, who, um, if they saw me going off in a different direction, they heard a sermon, they read a book, they came to our church, I expect them, I've I've empowered and authorized them to come get in my face. Now, ultimately, I can say, hey, go fly a kite. We're going to do it this way. We don't care. Well, in that case, they then can take steps to um, uh, to revoke our credentials as an Acts 29 church. So we are not, in saying we're independent, we're not isolated. Yeah, We're not living on an
0: island unto ourselves as if there's no accountability. We believe in accountability. And not only not isolated from those around us, you know, <clears throat> what we try to do is say we have accountability with with other other churches, affiliations, even church history. I mean, that's, that that's a hard that's hard the harder thing to explain but we are accountable to those who have gone before us mm-hmm. and and we place ourselves under them in some sense and we we don't say we deviate but the problem is we just don't have let's say evangelicalism for instance because that that's a good example of something that we we try to identify with all of us here say we're evangelicals but we there, there's no building the head of the evangelical quarters there's no president of evangelicalism there's no it's just a well, trans there was. Well, sort of. <laughs> well,
1: well, yeah, you know, the, the founding of the National Evangelical Association. Well, I ADA, know that. But but, but, it,
0: but they had no authority. Yeah, nobody recognized that as defining what evangelicalism Precisely. is. Precisely. Yeah, you're right. And so we have this transdenominational denominational idea that it, almost that in itself holds us accountable as we identify with it even though there's nobody that can come down upon us and fire us and say you're no longer evangelical. It's kind of just this unspoken idea of identification and whether or not evangelicalism, as you said, Sam, is easy to define these days, it's not. And this brings us back to the importance of what Tim was saying about
1: 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. That is, if we are really committed as individual members of, Of a local body and as elders to rigorously defining the office in those terms, looking to the character of men who meet those standards consistently, that is our accountability. And that's why. Uh, calling to, for a commitment to understanding and applying those principles in those two passages is so critically important.
2: And I would say an accountability, what we've kind of talked about, an internal inside this local congregation accountability to those qualification standards, but then also that external qualification in some ways too, be, always being open for, for brother and sister churches to, to be able to speak into ensuring that your leadership are continually accountable to those standards.
0: Now, it's very easy for us to come back to any other church tradition. I know all of them are going to have their problems and red flags that go up. And in the end, it's the one that we're convicted of as the most biblical and um, and we're most convicted about. Not so much which one has the most problems. I mean, obviously, you go from a top-down structure, mm-hmm. and you're going to have a corruption at top sometimes. Sometimes there'll be a great person at top, and, it's, it, and it works out really well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the bottom-up structure will be... Um, uh, where you have uh, a pooling of ignorance uh, of people trying to run things, and they're not qualified to do so. But in the end, whenever Martin Luther was uh, in the Reformation, in the middle of it, and then the general cry goes out from the Roman Catholic Church at the time, if you do this, it's going to go crazy, and you're going to have so much illegitimacy, and there'll be people out there starting churches that aren't qualified. And in the end, Don't we always say, yes, we know that, but it's worth the risk? And we also say we believe that the Spirit
1: of God um, through the Scriptures and the authoritative power of this text can hold us accountable. And we trust that over the long haul, in the general, so to speak, that the Spirit of God will maintain uh, our fidelity to the Word of God and to to the character of Christ and what
0: he's called us to be as church leaders. Theology Unplugged is presented by the Credo House. For more information on the Credo House, visit
2: www.credohouse.org.